0: Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck.
1: I'm Karen.
0: And this is Spy Stories. Tell me who we are going to learn about today, Karen.
1: Well, today we're going to learn something about someone that most of us thought we already knew. Ruhl Dahl. He was a spy, and this is his story. Ruhl Dahl was born in South Wales in 1916. His parents were Norwegian and named him after the Norwegian explorer Ruhl Amundsen.
0: Now, this was a pretty interesting guy, Amundsen. He was he was one of the first explorers of Antarctica, oh. and this guy actually led the first expedition to the South Pole, and possibly the first expedition to reach the North Pole. Wow. Oh. and he disappeared. He was on a rescue mission for the airship Italia up by the it had crashed up by the North Pole. Oh, wow! And he disappeared in that mission. Okay. No one ever, no one ever seen him again. It huh. was in 1928, a long, wow. long time ago.
1: Well, Rule's name is relevant because he carried with him the same adventurous spirit of his namesake. So, and just knowing about that, knowing that he was named after that explorer, might have kind of been something that he kept with him, and it probably helped form his personality. Rule was a boy with a very mischievous and charismatic personality, but his life took a very tragic course when he was just four years old, and his older sister died of appendicitis at just seven years old. His father was so just completely heartbroken that he ended up passing away just a few weeks later, and that left his pregnant wife Sophie with Four children and two stepchildren, whom she'd promised her husband she would educate in English schools. To this end, Rual was sent to a boarding academy when he was nine, and he found himself in a lot of trouble there. One incident that happened involved a mouse, and it became the story that was told in the book The Great Mouse Plot. But the incident ended up in a very severe caning from a school official, and this caused Rual's mother to transfer him to Repton, which was a well-known private school in Derby.
0: And Think about—I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt—think about going back to the days where they actually caned children.
1: I know, I know. It's crazy. Well, Dahl hated it at Repton. He was beaten and bullied by the other kids while he was there. And he also just found the rules and regulations of the school really stifling, as rules and regulations tend to be. (laughs) And he longed for adventure and lands far, far away. And one thing that's really cool about his time at Repton, uh, you've seen, Chuck, from the Spice that we've talked about before, what seemed to be really big challenges in their life when they were young actually end up... Like shaping them in really positive ways, right? I mean, we've seen this over and over Um, with Christine being uh, having the lung issue and Juan having just being a liar. I mean, all of those things ended up working out for them later. Well, same thing happened with Ruol. It just so happened that the students at Repton were near the Cadbury Chocolate headquarters and Cadbury representatives used Dahl and the other students at Repton as taste testers. The young teenagers exchanged their silence for a little gray box containing a grading sheet and 12 different chocolate bars, one control bar, and 11 new creations. So wrapped in plain foil and marked by a number, each bar was judged by the boys and rated from 0 to 10 pretty sure there wasn't any chocolate that was rated zero right I mean
0: you have never run into a chocolate I have not zero
1: that is true (laughs) that is when you
0: were when you were putting this together did you think I have found my dream job
1: yeah yeah I would be down with that well after they had their chocolate they were asked to explain what why they graded it the way they did um And rule was surprised by the very clandestine nature of the testing. And he asked a lot of questions. And he discovered a very surprising world of chocolate and sabotage.
0: Sabotage. Sabotage.
1: So, what do you think this experience led to later in his life, Chuck?
0: I think it... Because he wrote about this experience later on in life he to some did. degree.
1: He did in a story about a young man named Charlie and a chocolate factory owned by a very eccentric man by the name of Willy Wonka. Well, upon Rule's graduation, his dreams of adventure began to be realized when he accepted a position with Shell Oil Company in Africa. He was first sent to work in Kenya and then in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Tanzania was one of the former German colonies handed over to the British after World War I. There was still a community of several hundred Germans that resided in the capital city. So after the war broke out in 1939, the British decided to arrest all German citizens just to prevent a potential resistance.
0: Tanzania's most famous export. Karen,
1: I I don't know.
0: Freddie Mercury.
1: <laughs> I, that's true. I that is very true. Rule Dahl, who was a British subject, joined the army in 1939 and was given the rank of lieutenant in the King's African Rifles, commanding a platoon of Ascaris.
0: Do you know what Ascaris were, Karen?
1: I believe they were the natives. Right?
0: Is that they the case? were. The King's African Rifles were a regiment of the British Army. They were kind of separate from the British Army.
1: Okay.
0: They were made up of British commanders and officers, but the soldiers were from the colonies in East Africa. Okay. And they would use them for whatever wars they were fighting in Africa Mm -hmm. or when they got involved in the world wars. So they used them there. The Askaris were the rank and file. They were the soldiers. So
1: they were basically used. That's what you're saying.
0: They were cannon fodder, yes.
1: That's really sad. Well, after only a month in the army, Dahl joined the Royal Air Force. He was accepted for training in Nairobi, Kenya, and he was there along with 16 other applicants. Only three of his classmates, besides himself, survived the war. In Kenya, he received training and managed to collect seven hours and 40 minutes experience in a de Havilland Tiger Moth. So, seven hours and 40 minutes with the airplane.
0: I would not want to be a passenger in that plane. I wouldn't feel a lot of confidence.
1: Right? Well, Dahl continued his training in Iraq. Then he became a commissioned pilot officer in 1940. After six months of training on Hawker Hearts, he was made an acting pilot. Shortly after, and this is very weird, Dahl was given control over an obsolete Gloucester Gladiator, which was the last biplane model used by the British as a fighter aircraft. But he didn't receive any additional training concerning aerial combat (laughs) or the Gladiator itself.
0: Much like Juan, how hard could it be? (laughs)
1: I I mean, this just doesn't doesn't seem like a good idea. It really doesn't. Well, the lack of training surprisingly led to a very serious incident in 1940. Dahl was supposed to fly from Egypt to Amira to refuel and then to Libya for a second refuel before reaching his squadron's airstrip. On the final... Stretch of his trip, he could not locate the landing area. And since night was closing in and he was getting low on fuel, he just tried to land in the desert. So he ended up crash landing and was very seriously injured, including really intense head wounds and temporary blindness. After the crash, Dahl had just enough strength left in his battered body to crawl away from the flaming airplane which shortly exploded into nothing. Luckily, he was found by a rescue team and was sent to the Royal Navy Hospital in Alexandria, Egypt. He was finally able to rejoin his squadron in 1941, where he found himself fighting in the Battle of Athens, and this took both a physical and emotional toll on him. There were 12 hurricanes involved, the airplanes, and five were shot down. Four of their pilots killed, including one of Dahl's close friends.
0: This was part of the bigger battle of Greece. This was the Battle of Athens. It was the air war above Athens where the RAF was really greatly outnumbered. But the significant thing that happened in this battle mm-hmm. was Pat Paddle was killed. And he was Britain's best fighter ace in World War Two. Oh, wow. And to give it some context to be considered an ace you had to have five kills
1: wow okay
0: he had 51
1: wow wow well i believe that doll was also considered an ace right weren't they both yes right he
0: was i believe he got he ended up with three in the battle of athens
1: right well i know that he was really 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 good friends with the other ace that that died and that was really really just really devastating for him in a lot of ways so
0: well the story of that ace is really really interesting again it's pat paddle
1: pat paddle
0: pat paddle look him up because the day that he was supposed to fly he was so sick they wanted to keep him on the ground he Uh, had the flu wow and they had to help him into his clothes and help him into the plane
1: wow that that's crazy. Well, also during rules time in Greece, he would intermittently suffer just really, really crippling headaches and eventual blackouts, which made it too dangerous for him to fly.
0: Yeah, that would. The, the one thing you ask of your pilot is to be conscious,
1: right? While yeah. you're flying, <laughs> He would think blackouts would kind of be a a no brainer that maybe they shouldn't be flying an air.
0: Yeah, not making it too dangerous to fly. Let's say making it impossible right. to fly if it's you're going to flying legitimate. me somewhere. Right. And maybe even to drive. I mean, he should really, <laughs> he should be limited a to a bicycle by this time. Yeah.
1: Yes. Well, after he was grounded, Dahl ended up in the United States working as an assistant air attache at the British embassy in Washington, D.C., He was very handsome and very dashing, and they liked to kind of parade him out as representative. So it was in D.C. that Dahl began to publish a lot of his works. His first official foray into writing was really just cathartic therapy to kind of help him deal with his wartime experiences. But his literary work started really commanding attention, and he started making friends and connections in the upper echelons of American society. He was helped along in this by his friendship with newspaper owner and oil magnate Charles Marsh, who connected Dahl with anyone who was anyone from the entertainment industry to the political world. Do you want to know if someone else Charles Marsh took under his wing?
0: Who's that, Karen? Tell me.
1: A very young president. Well, he wasn't president yet, but a very young Lyndon B. Johnson.
0: No, kid. see, you find yes. a way to work Johnson into everything. I find we do.
1: Lyndon Johnson to be a fascinating human. Not someone that I like, but a fascinating human. So, anyway, it was also during this time in his life that Dahl was recruited as an undercover agent by the BSC, the British Security Coordination, and their rumor factory mission.
0: Well, do you want to know what the Rumor Factory was, Karen? Tell me. The Rumor Factory was set up to dispel morale-damaging gossip. Now, you have to remember that there's this incorrect narrative that all of America was lined up to fight the Nazis, and that right. just really wasn't the case. Right. More Americans supported Hitler than you might think. Now, mm-hmm. not, there wasn't a huge movement, but there were a lot of them, the most famous being... Um, the radio priest, Charles Coughlin, okay. he also had Charles Lindbergh, who right. denounced the Jewish people for pushing the U.S. towards an unnecessary war, he said.
1: Right. A lot of people in Hollywood. Right. I mean, that was kind of yeah. A,
0: a lot of people in Hollywood
1: espoused his ideology. They didn't really there wasn't a lot of knowledge about the tactics, but just the ideology was espoused by more people than we would like to admit, I think, at that time.
0: Yeah. And, and afterwards, a lot of those people came out and said they weren't really pro-Nazi. They were anti-communist. Mm-hmm. So that's how they got out. But Germany had a very, very good propaganda machine. And what they would do was have rumors started, you know, mm-hmm. and wherever. And it was so bad that they had to set up these morale wardens to track down gossip and dispel it. Wow. Okay. So, you know, rumors would spread in bars and factories and whatever. And the most common rumors were about the U.S. war efforts and they talked about crimes committed by U.S. soldiers and things like that. But again, it was it was really to fight the German propaganda machine because it was so effective and. The number of Nazi sympathizers that we had in the United States at that time was much more significant than we like to admit today.
1: It was kind of to test the waters as to where a lot of the American power players were with it. Right. Wasn't that kind of some of the goals? Yeah. Well, Dahl's work was more focused on surveillance than actual sabotage. 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 He spent time doing the country club and cocktail party circuit wooing women and searching for American isolationist ideology that could be bad news for Britain. Although Ruhl was particularly good at the wooing women part of his mission, he sometimes got caught up in the party gossip, and this caused his intelligence to not always be so precise.
0: (laughs) Now, Hold on, let's go back to the serious head injury, too. I mean, that's got to do something to make your memory not be so precise.
1: I don't think he was blacking out at the parties. I think maybe that he had moved past that, but yeah.
0: Um, Yeah, but still, I don't know that I trust someone.
1: Right, to be a spy.
0: To be a spy that just occasionally blacks out in the middle of
1: gossip. <laughs> right. Well, one example of the gossip problem included an American president. Rule Dahl's book, The Gremlins, was particularly popular at that time and was a favorite of Eleanor Roosevelt. She contacted Dahl, and this gave him close proximity to the entire family. In fact, in 1943, Ruhl spent a week with President Roosevelt in his home in Hyde Park and afterwards submitted a 10-page report directly to Winston Churchill. Now, this report included historically unsubstantiated gossip that FDR was engaged in an affair with a Norwegian crown princess. So, I think he was focused on Things that might not be completely relevant.
0: Right. Yeah. Although FDR was engaged in an affair, but it wasn't with the Norwegian crown princess.
1: Ruhl was particularly interested in America's post-war activities, and he would frequently report on that. One of his big connections when it came to that was Harry Truman, and he kept a very close watch on him through several poker games. One of his last official acts was to help Ernest Hemingway travel to London, where he acted as a, his minder prior to D-Day.
0: And he did not do a very good job because prior to D-Day, Hemingway had a blackout drunk car wreck that <laughs> left him with a nasty head wound during D-Day. And it, and the story of Hemingway and D-Day is pretty interesting if you want to hear the, uh, the myth Mm-hmm. You have Hemingway, you know, this veteran who had, had, I'm using air quotes here, fought in Italy in the Spanish Civil War, mm-hmm. who knew all the tricks, right? Right. So these ships are landing, and he's telling the ship's officers how to keep their binoculars free from the flying spray. <laughs> um, but, and you wrapped them in an old sock, but that was a trick he said he taught them. Okay. He taught them how to... Get through the channel without hitting mines. Huh. You know he he would scream and uh, you know, so.
1: <laughs> I'm he, sorry, he it's not funny. Him, it's just. I'm no,
0: just, I mean this is it's... the myth. Um, He'd tell him, "Look over there. There's the tanks. Go here. You know, go there." <laughs> so that
1: Hemingway is was the myth just... of
0: Hemingway landing at D-Day.
1: He now, basically solved re- everything.
0: Hey. Right, right. The truth is about Hemingway at D-Day, and Hemingway was involved in D-Day, but the truth was he was on a supply ship that came in in the seventh wave at Omaha (laughs) Beach, and then he didn't even actually set foot on the beach. They just offloaded the supplies. He was on to a transport ship. (laughs) Where they could offload. I mean, they were not going to let Hemingway get killed on D-Day. Right. You know, landing on D-Day. But if you hear the if you hear the tales of Hemingway at D-Day, it was, you know, pretty impressive.
1: The man, the myth, the legend. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: Yeah, he's he's half fact, half fiction there. But what is funny is he did have, he was his minder in London.
1: Didn't do that. greatest And he didn't
0: job. do a great job of mining because Hemingway had his head all wrapped up <laughs> in D-Day and he was still healing because he literally got blackout drunk and wow. wrecked a car in London right before D-Day.
1: Wow. That's crazy. Well, the remainder of Dahl's life was really a tempest of trauma and triumph. He married actress Patricia Neal in 1953, and they quickly began a family. Their first child, Olivia, was born in 1955. The next, Tessa, she arrived in 57, and in 1960, their first son was born, little Theo. When Theo was only four months old, his stroller was struck by a taxicab, and this caused serious and permanent brain damage the most serious aspect being water on the brain. While helping to care for his son, Ruwal and two friends, uh, one was a neuroscientist and the other an engineer, they ended up inventing a device called the Doll till device that helped alleviate cranial pressure. This actually helped Theo survive And Theo Dahl is now thriving, living a very quiet life outside of his father's famous limelight. So, um, he's actually doing quite well now. Ruhl spent much of his life advocating for research in the area of brain damage. In 1962, the family suffered another incredible tragedy. The death of the oldest child, Olivia, due to complications that sprang from having the measles In a very cruel twist of irony, Olivia died at age seven, the same age as Rual's sister when she died. Mm. Yeah. In 1964, Ophelia was born. But when Ophelia was only a year old, her mother, who was pregnant again, suffered a succession of strokes that left her completely debilitated for a really long time. Despite this... The child that she was pregnant with, Lucy, was born in 1965. So, I mean, they really just went through an incredible amount of tragedy in a very short time. Both Patricia Neal and Tessa have written unflattering things about Ruhal. But both of them credited his hard, sometimes bullying manner with pushing Patricia to functionality again. And despite the doctors once saying that she would be no more than a vegetable, she actually recovered very well and reignited her acting career. So, I mean, it was um, apparently he really put her through the ringer, but it ended up helping her. In 1967, Roald Dahl's mother, Sophie, died. This depressed Rawl even more, and it created a larger sense of dissatisfaction with his very chaotic life. Then, in 1981, Rual and Patricia divorced after 28 years of marriage. Rual had been involved for 11 years with Felicity Lissy Crossland, whom he married in 1983. Despite the pain of the divorce, even Dahl's children call Lissy the love of Rual's life. In 1990, Roald Dahl was admitted to the hospital in Oxford due to myelodysplastic syndrome, a blood disorder, and he passed away 11 days after. But even in the hospital, he didn't lose his fierce and very quirky personality. During the stay, he actually tried valiantly to have his Jack Russell Terrier lifted up to his hospital window in a basket. Oh, so,
0: well, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: He was just like, no, this is going to happen. It didn't, but he tried very hard.
0: Although, so, you know what? When my brother was in the hospital,
1: mm-hmm.
0: his favorite thing was when I would go to his house and get his dog and bring it up to the Aww. hospital.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's really not weird. But, I mean, Rual did a lot of quirky things. He had a writing hut, and he kept very strange. Like, he kept a piece of his hip from a surgery that he had. I mean, he, he just was a quirky guy, but... Ruald Dahl is buried at St. Peter and St. Paul's Church in Great Missenden, Buckinghamshire. His wife, Lissy, honors his memory by running the Ruald Dahl Foundation, which is a grant-giving charity that focuses on children's literacy, neurology, and hematology. Ruwal Dahl was a very, very complicated man. His biographer describes him this way he was a man of many contradictions. A Tory that loved to subvert authority. A misanthrope who found optimism in adversity. A shameless self-promoter who enjoyed giving money to worthy causes. He was famously a war hero, a connoisseur, a philanthropist, a family man who had to confront an appalling succession of tragedies, But he was also a fantasist, an anti Semite, a bully, and a self publicizing troublemaker. He was also the author who gave children a multitude of wonderful works, such as James and the Giant Peach, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, Matilda, The Witches, The BFG, and The Unforgettable Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And he was a spy.
0: He was a spy, and one of the things that is interesting about him is that, as we said, he was more surveillance than spy, but he was a spy. But he was spying on America, an Mm -hmm. ally.
1: That's right. You know,
0: all the spies that we had covered up to this point have all been spying on enemies. But we forget that just because someone is an ally does not mean they are not spying on you, too.
1: Right. That's
0: right.
1: Everybody spies
0: on everyone. That is, that is very true.
1: Well, a longtime friend said this about Rule: Almost anything you could say about him would be true. It just depended on which side he chose to show you. These verses by Dylan Thomas were recited at Doll's funeral. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse. Bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light.
0: You can find Spy Stories on all the main podcasting platforms. If you like the show, please take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook at Spy Stories Group. And you can follow us on Twitter at Spy Stories Pod.
1: Dahl lived a life that refused to go gentle into that good night. His life reminds us, just as Harriet the Spy says, life is a struggle. A good spy gets in there and fights.
0: And until the next time, keep fighting.